Hello everyone, it's January 10th, 2023. Happy New Year, and to get us started, it's a Lunar Roundup. We got Luna HMAP, Korea's KPLO, Hakuda R, Chandrayaan 3. It's gonna be a busy year for the moon. I think it'll be a busy year for spaceflight in general, so let's get the show off the pad, Destination the Moon, and liftoff. <laughs> In me through the tower, welcome to episode 391 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. I'm alive. And I'm Dennis. And Ben is alive. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> I, I died two weeks before you two did. So uh, so how was your guys' uh, Christmas, uh, New Year's, holiday, a uh, little break? That's fine. Yeah, it was nice. I, I have to say that the, the break from having to podcast is kind of nice because there's no yeah. workload. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you get to just, oh, I don't have to do anything today. I can just do whatever. But yeah. it's weird. The, the weeks stop having meaning. Like uh, the the fact that my entire Sunday morning is dedicated to a thing makes it really easy to keep track of what what day uh. of the week it is. Uh-huh. Yeah. So Dennis, you you said you stayed home for the holiday, right? Yep. Yeah, I stayed in uh, in Tucson, and so yeah, I yeah. did a whole lot of nothing, and it was great. Um, <laughs> Any good brunches? I kind of needed it. Any good brunches? Um, I, I well, feel I, like if you're in if you're in Tucson over Christmas break, like brunch especially on uh on like an outdoor patio or something is like exactly what you have to do it definitely has been good weather um hitting the 60s and 70s a lot during the break there was a there was a bit of cold spell when california got all that water dumped on it so you just you just got cold not water we had a little bit of water which was good for the succulents but yeah but no i definitely have been uh spending a lot of time kind of just reading outside in particular um good yeah and 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 david i got to give you uh, a, a super uh, thumbs up for suggesting Dragonfly. That the book uh, was it, Bill book, huh? <laughs> Bill Bill Burroughs or William Burroughs? O'Brien Burrow. But no, I got to say that's that's the best space book I've read so far. I mean, there's just so much trash talking in it, mm-hmm. like right out the gate. Yeah, I yeah. love it. Yeah, there's things that I feel like astronauts normally wouldn't say, but mm. I don't know how the author gets all this information. Maybe just you know having candid discussions. Mm. Um, but all kinds of interesting stuff. So, so it's a book about Mir, right? Yeah, yeah. It's basically following. Um, I'm, I'm only so far on the uh, the Jerry Leninger, uh, uh Oh yeah, expedition to Mir. But uh, yeah, he, he it's it's basically late '90s uh, Mir expeditions, which is when Mir was running to a lot of uh, trouble, let's <laughs> say, on orbit. <laughs> In the news, uh, Lunar Spacecraft Roundup. So this is just a quick little roundup of all the things going on in, or not not in, but near or around the moon or maybe on the moon. Sure, yeah. There's This is going to be, I guess, the the year of the moon, <laughs> um, <laughs> hopefully. And so a lot of cool stuff to, to wait for. That's not a zodiac sign, is it? Yeah. <laughs> and we got, uh, so yeah, so I guess first up, um, the, the, get the bad news out of the way, Luna HMAP. Right? And so this is a, a CubeSat that is uh, struggling to enter lunar orbit. And so uh, specifically, this was launched on Artemis 1. It was one of the ride-alongs. It's a 6U CubeSat. And it's, um, uh, it's, I guess, full name is a Lunar Polar Hydrogen Mapper. And the idea is that it's one of various ways that NASA is trying to uh, map out and detect water that's in permanently shadowed craters, since that's a whole... I guess, cornerstone of um, the idea of setting up a lunar base around the South Pole, having access to that water for fuel, for 
environmental control and life support, et cetera. And so in particular, though, Lunar Mapper does it using uh, neutron scintillation detection. And so basically on this uh, 6U spacecraft is a really tiny looking detector if you actually look at it itself. But uh, cosmic rays are, you know, slamming into the moon all the time. And some of the products that get generated include neutrons that are going to go zipping on out and ultimately reach your spacecraft if you get into orbit. Uh, But uh, if there's water around, that essentially um, slows down the neutrons more. And so you have more lower energy neutrons. And so you can use that as a proxy for how much water there is in a given area. And so... Permanently shadowed craters tend to be dark, so it'd be good to have a way that can uh, check out their presence, uh, the presence of water in them without having to actually uh, see light coming from them. And so that's what this was designed to do. Uh, but unfortunately, it's not being, it's, they're having trouble entering lunar orbit, and the culprit is their propulsion system. Uh, and it's in particular a, a BUSEC a BIT3 uh, radio frequency ion thruster. And so BUSEC is kind of uh, the really big deal when it comes to uh, uh, electric propulsion. Uh, they had the first Hall uh, thruster, um, you know, to fire on orbit. Uh, they're going to be the ones providing, I believe, the, uh, the thrusters for uh, the power propulsion element for Gateway. And so, uh, you know, they're really good, you know, big name, but they're iodine thruster on this particular mission is having trouble. And they think it's a sticky valve. And um, when I read that, I was like, you know, how, wh- where are their valves in electric thrusters, right? They always just seem like a little box. But um, my understanding is that, you know, the ion, right, uh, is the, one of the key advantages to having that as your fuels that you can have it stored as a solid, uh, not under, you know, a ton amount, uh, uh, very high pressure like you need for, say, xenon. And so that's why uh, our good friends at ThrustMe, you know, doing the first uh, ion thruster on orbit, uh, last year, that was really cool and exciting. But I guess uh, you know you can't make a plasma, which is how an RF ion thruster is going to accelerate your, you know, ions out the back of your spacecraft. Uh, you need to have a gas, and so I guess the the solid iodine needs to sublimate and then make it into the main propulsion unit where the uh, the RF frequency bombards it, creates the plasma, and then the magnetic field goes and accelerates it out the back. And so I guess the the sticky valve is presumably uh, the one uh, related to the iodine um, actually getting into the uh, chamber itself for that to happen. That, that's that's me reading into it, um, just trying to read about what this this how this thruster works and everything. I don't know if maybe there's a, a pressurant that's also involved, but um, but yeah, that's that's kind of the issue there. Um, and so people are trying to troubleshoot it on the ground. Um, what worries me is that this is supposed to be a two month mission. And so I assume they don't have all time, like all the time in the world uh, to necessarily uh, operate, even if they could try to kind of figure it out later. And then I also don't know how many opportunities for breaking into orbit they will have um, based on the trajectory that Artemis 1 put them on. Yeah. Well, that's something that I was kind of wondering is exactly what is the current orbit and can they still get to the orbit that they want? Yeah, good question. You know, my, 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 my take is that because they, you know, it, it presumably was, you know, taking advantage of these lower energy orbits and three body, uh, taking mm-hmm. advantage of the three body system that, you know, they could maybe just do one of their uh, insertion maneuvers at a later time. And so they can kind of maybe keep pushing it back and how much delta V that takes might change over time. Um, 
but yeah, I, 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 that's, that's, I think a good point and something that I don't know about, <laughs> at least from the, uh, the little bit of reading that I had done on it, but, um, all the other spacecraft systems work. And so, yeah. So, so a quick Google search got me to Busek's page and they've got a diagram, um, of their engine and, one of the labels reads iodine propellant tank 1.5 kilogram expendable oh expandable with integrated valve so it sounds like yeah they um they're using iodine because they don't have to worry about high pressure storage and so they probably heat up their iodine with the valve closed to get up to a certain pressure and then open the valve to have a controlled propellant flow into the acceleration chamber and I can't remember if we talked, if ThrustMe was willing to tell us about how they did it, but my impression was that ThrustMe had no moving parts and that they accepted lower performance so that they could just put the iodine straight in the propellant chamber or with a direct access to the propellant chamber um, so that they didn't need a valve. But I, I really don't know if, if that was confirmed or not. But it's, it sounds like there, my my guess is that there might be two separate strategies, which is kind of cool um, to see. You know, a high performance with some risk drawbacks, and then a low performance with fewer risk drawbacks. It would make sense given that uh, Thrust Me is primarily targeting like Leo vehicles, um, where that risk is is less costly. But again, not confident. <laughs> not confident. No, no, thank. You. Thanks for catching that. Okay, so this is oh, this is actually helpful. All right, so I, when I was saying they were planning for two months, that's the science phase. Uh, their launch to lunar orbit insertion is four point two five months, four and a quarter. So I guess you know that four months that's similar to Hakutu R's uh, length of this trip, or at least uh, uh, sorry, uh, the Korean Pathfinder lunar orbiter's trip was about four months, and so. Um, not surprising to hear that number pop up again. So yeah, I guess, you know, it really is, you know, the time is ticking for when they'll be able to still uh, do a, a correction maneuver that can get them into lunar orbit. Um, but at least these low energy orbits take a while. So they have a lot more to work with than, you know, three days as they're heading to the moon. And, you know, you better hit the brakes fast in that case. And then so next up, it's all good news from here. Um, so the this happened actually a few weeks ago while we were away for the holiday break. And the Korean Pathfinder Lunar Orbiter, or KPLO, aka Denori, uh, has entered lunar orbit. So congratulations. Yay. Uh, this actually happened December 17th after four months of traveling on a uh, another one of these BLTs, Ballistic Lunar Trajectories. And so... Uh, it took five burns to refine its orbit and was basically all set by essentially the end of last year. Um, and now it is in orbit, and I guess they're probably uh, kind of commissioning and getting ready to do some some serious business. Uh, and they've got uh, six instruments on board, um, cameras, spectrometers, uh, uh, magnetometer, you know, all the good stuff that you would uh, expect from a good old lunar orbiter. So uh, but congratulations to um, the Korean aerospace and aerospace industry for for pulling this off. And um, one of their six instruments, though, is a NASA um, shadow cam, which I want to bring up as a theme. This is an optical camera in this case, and I guess it's able to still pick out the low levels of light that are coming from these uh, shadowed craters. But this is also another one trying to identify water in these craters. And so NASA is doing it a bunch of different ways. But in any event, 
that's exciting and very happy here. Um, and then another uh, success in the making is good old Hakuto R, uh, M1 or Mission 1. And so this is the Japanese uh, private company iSpaces um, lander that has a few uh, uh, other uh, spacecraft on board. And so anyway, it also is doing one of these big old looping low energy uh, orbits. And um, uh, on January 2nd, it completed its second maneuver successfully. And so the third one will be when it's at Apogee, uh, when it's feeling the most of uh, the sun's uh, gravity. And um, yeah, and they're going to see whether or not they need to uh, to do it or how strong a maneuver it has to be. Uh, if, you, if I remember correctly, Capstone was able to cancel one or two of theirs uh, TCMs because of how accurate earlier ones had been. And so, yeah. And so this this is a uh, good old bi uh, prop system. I uh, wasn't able to find out what they are, but that's fine. It's a private company. But yeah, this is, is a bi-prop system where they've got one kind of big engine um, and then six thrusters uh, that share um, the same uh, propellant source uh, all arrayed around it. And that's in addition to its uh, its RCS, which is a hydrogen-based system. And so things are looking good for there. And hitching on board uh, would be very exciting. UAE, uh, their Rashid rover. And then uh, NASA... Yet another uh, NASA uh, spacecraft that is, uh, uh, well, lunar flashlight. And so this is a uh, infrared spectrometer. And this one, I don't believe, uh, as I'm saying this now, uh, I don't think this one's going to the surface. Um, lunar flashlight must be leaving Hakuto R, uh, being uh, separated uh, uh, while it's still on its orbit and then just going into orbit around the moon. And so that's because this is a uh, this is a CubeSat that'll be doing some uh, some IR spectroscopy to try to identify water again in these craters. And so um, it's almost like a lot of shots on goal. I mean, I'm sure these measurements are complementary, but even if you do have a problem like with Luna HMAP, if Shadow Cam and Lunar Flashlight work well, we'll still get some good understanding of the ice distribution and characteristics in these craters. And then finally, going longer term, um, Hakuto R, I should step back for a moment, right? What would be really cool about this was would be, um, this would be make Japan only the fourth nation to land a spacecraft on the moon after the United States, the Soviet Union, and China. And if you recall, the last time we had a flurry of uh, nations that were potentially going to become that fourth uh, it was in 2019, and in early 2019, that's when we had uh, a private uh, uh, Israeli mission, Bereshit, that crashed. And then later in 2019, we had the Chandrayaan-2 mission uh, also crash. And so that was a tough year for trying to be the fourth mission to land softly on the moon. Uh, but Chandrayaan-3 is recently in the news where that spacecraft is fully integrated and ready to go. And we talked about this uh you know, basically years ago, probably in 2019, shortly after two crashed. But what I had no idea about it is that because Chandrayaan 2's orbiter has successfully entered lunar orbit and is still there to this day doing science, Chandrayaan 3, they're going to take out the orbiter part of it. And so it's just going to be a lander rover mission. And it will use Chandrayaan 2's orbiter like, you know, like it would have uh, if, if that mission had been fully successful with its landing assets. That's a good idea. Yeah, it's pretty cool. You save you some money and you can, you know, put more of your focus and mission into making sure you get the lander and rover right. So the, the head of ISRO, Esselnath, uh, uh was he made this uh, announcement at the 108th uh, Indian Science Congress talking about how the satellite's fully integrated in the final phase of preparation. And so uh, this article, quote, Talks, or talks about, quote, engineering on the spacecraft is significantly different and more robust. Uh, 
And so that's pretty good to know because uh, after all, right, uh, Chandrayaan 2, uh, it looked like everything was well until uh, in the kind of terminal part of its landing, it suddenly, its attitude went spinning, or its attitude went wrong, and it basically just was going way too fast. Uh, uh, it might have... I can't remember. It, it was the one that actually had shut down and they tried to reboot it. Or maybe that was Bereshik that actually turned off. and had turned I, think that was Bereshik, I think that yeah. was Bereshik, yeah. Yeah, Chandrian 2 had a, a software issue with its lander. And so that was kind of the issue there. And that that bug went and screwed everything up. So some of the changes that they're making, um, they're changing now to four throttleable, en- throttleable engines on the lander rather than five. Uh, Chandrayaan 2 had four throttleable engines uh, along with a central fixed engine. Uh, So they're moving away from that. Um, They're getting a new guidance algorithm as well as improved uh, communication systems. Um, It sounds like they're adding more antennas to more places so they'll be able to communicate under more circumstances and attitudes. And they're also adding a uh, a laser Doppler velocity sensors into the system or LDV sensors. And so these basically tell you, right, using, you know, the Doppler effect, how, what your velocity is in your three axes. And they developed this for Chandrayaan 2, but it didn't perform so hot in ground testing. So they decided to not put it on there. Um, They said that they would have really liked it though, to have been there (laughs) given uh, what happened to Chandrayaan 2. And so hopefully whatever it wasn't doing well in ground testing, it sounds like they went and fixed it. And, um, and, and and they're also throwing in just as even more redundancy, some stronger landing legs and, you know, I think they're adding an extra panel, a solar panel to get, you know, even better energy uh, management. And so, um, yeah, so, so a lot of things very, very focused, uh, which is great to hear. And so Chandrayaan three is, is, is looking like they're really, you know, focusing on sticking the landing. And so whether it will be Japan or India, or who knows who else, <laughs> uh, there's still the race to be that fourth nation. And so the, the landing date is uh, hopefully sometime later this year, uh, which is really exciting. And so uh, good luck to them, uh, even if uh, Hakuto R, which, you know, fingers crossed, I hope that one lands for sure, uh, which would be landing first, but still having uh, your own lunar lander, lunar lander on the moon, along with a uh, a rover would be really, really cool and exciting uh, feather in the cap for Israel. Oh, and, and then finally, to append a fifth spacecraft to this roundup, uh, thank you, Sam, for pointing out that Luna 25, the continuation of the uh, Luna program, uh, Russia is aspiring to have 25 reach the moon this year, and they've actually built, looks like, the hardware for it. And so um, it, it doesn't seem quite as much of a, well, I don't want to say pipe dream. It doesn't seem quite as uh, as much of just a purely con- conceptual phase as a lot of other Russian missions are mm-hmm. um, at this point, right? They've got you know all sorts of uh, telescopes that are really just ideas at this point um, and have been for decades, it seems. All right, so this week, let's do two short and sweets, even though there's three of us, but why not just do two again? Uh, ben, what is he first? <laughs> All right, first up, uh, China to expand Wenchang Spaceport. Completed in 2014, the coastal Wenchang Spaceport on Hainan Island in southern China has since allowed the country to launch a new generation of rockets. It is now being expanded to accommodate commercial launchers, and eventually a next-gen crewed rocket, as well as the massive Long March 9 vehicle. 
China hopes to increase its launch frequency from Wenchang dramatically, from a current 6 to 8 times a year to 20 to 30 times a year. The Long March 9 rocket is planned to be used for building out the International Lunar Research Station, or ILRS, and the new crewed launcher is targeting 2026 for its first test flight. And then next up, Impulse Space has a mission. Impulse Space announced that it will launch its new orbital transfer vehicle, Mira, or Myra, I'm not sure, aboard a SpaceX transporter rideshare mission later this year. Mira is an orbital maneuvering system that can deliver multiple payloads to different orbits in a single mission. It uses a green propellant and is capable of 1,000 meters of delta V with a 300 kilogram payload. On this mission, it will make several deployments, then possibly raise and lower its orbit before finally deorbiting. Impulse Space plans to develop larger vehicles in the future for transfer to higher orbits. Okay, so let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. Uh, we have no winners. Uh, apparently, the clue that we came up with uh, two weeks ago was harder than I thought. Um, and the clue was Tacoma Narrows Bridge at Mach 25. I think everyone knows what the Tacoma Narrows Bridge is. That part wasn't hard. And Mach 25 means, you know, you're in orbit, right? So put those two together. But I guess no one did or successfully did. So we had one guess that was not correct. He said it was a shot in the dark. But uh, anyway, what is this event, Ben? <laughs> right. So this week in spaceflight history is the 14th of January, 2009. Uh, a Russian thruster firing shakes the ISS. This is a really cool one. I'm kind of surprised I hadn't heard of this. And I didn't hear about it last week. You guys picked the clue. Um, and like, that. this is a cool one. So basically, uh, back in 2009, they were doing just a routine uh, thruster firing to raise the altitude to the ISS. They were using the uh, orbital altitude maintenance engines on Zvezda. For reference, there are two of them and they are 440 pound or 200 kilogram engines. And th this is like not a weird thing at this point. Not only have they done a bunch of Zvezda reboosts, but they'd also done reboosts with shuttle and with progresses. And so this was uh, a fairly long maneuver, but that's uh, when compared to much bigger engines doing uh, like planetary transfers, right? Uh, this was a two minute, 22 second maneuver. And if you've ever seen videos of these maneuvers uh, on ISS, it's really cool. It accelerates the station at much, much less than a G. It's not enough to be super noticeable, but if you can hang something in the air and it's still enough, it'll start falling towards the back of the station. And of course, since it's acceleration, the speed of the objects, you know, the relative speed picks up as the station is moving faster and faster uh, every unit time. So this wasn't um, just a, a reboost for reboost sake. They needed to get into the correct altitude um, to prepare for the arrival of a progress um, space shuttle discovery. And then also I believe a Soyuz, um, because my notes only say progress and discovery. And then my notes also say that the progress was planned to have, uh, us tourist Charles Simony on board. And last time I checked, they don't fly people on progresses. <laughs> so I think it was also, uh, I, I wrote that down, uh, intending to look up which, uh, which Soyuz mission that was. And I didn't. So while they're doing this reboost, the space station starts to dance. Some of the astronauts looked out the window. I don't know if this happened early, but I suspect that this would have been the first sign if somebody was looking in the right direction. The, the saws, the solar alpha wings, started swaying back and forth. Um, and then everybody noticed it because on the inside of station, 
uh, cables uh, powering laptops and equipment started flopping back and forth. There's a, a really great video um, that's been hosted a couple of times. I'm linking to one uh, YouTube video in the comments. Uh, hopefully it doesn't get taken down. I saw like three of them. And I just picked one at random. Um, but like it's taken from a camera on an arm and the camera is flopping back and forth so much that it's actually kind of hard to see anything else in frame moving, right? Because uh, nothing else is on as long of an arm as those cameras are. But eventually, apparently, some objects were actually able to shake themselves loose from the walls. My assumption is that these are objects that were in elastic, uh, you know, the, the elastic grid kind of restraints. So they just tucked them in somewhere. Uh -huh. And those came loose. Um, and so a lot of the sources that you'll see talking about this describe it as vibration. And it, indeed, this is a type of vibration, but it's a much lower frequency than you think of when you think of vibration. It was actually about a two hertz. Uh, oh, I guess actually half a hertz frequency. It was every two seconds. Um, so it'd be one, one half an oscillation every second. So half hertz. They completed the thruster firing, which is kind of shocking to me. If this was happening on my space station, I, as an astronaut, would have shut down the engines no matter what uh, ground control said. <laughs> I would not be happy about this. And like th this was really intense. Afterwards, they identified these oscillations as not only exceeding uh, the limits that they had set, but exceeding them by five X, like five times more oscillation than they than they had certified the station to withstand really crazy so they completed the firing um, but then they canceled a firing the next month so this was on january 14th they canceled one that was planned for february 4th basically they got enough of an altitude boost um that that they were happy with where they were but they uh they didn't want to do any more boosts if they didn't need them now the cause this is really interesting right like what in the world could have, could have made this happen? I mean, it's no spoiler to say it was something that was easily fixable, right? Because we've done plenty of Zvezda reboosts since 2009. I don't think anybody uh, would be, I think it would be really shocking <laughs> if I yeah. said this took a long time because then it would be this big issue that the station had and everybody would know about it. Uh, no, it, it was this one particular burn had an issue. They, um, set a bunch of parameters and, you know, essentially emailed them to the engine control system on Zvezda. And there was an error in one of the parameter settings. So to explain what happened, you have to understand that the Zvezda engines are actually gimbaled. I, I don't think I knew that. It, it makes sense that they would be gimbaled um, because they're pushing something that is not going to have a center of gravity like in exactly a straight line from the engine. Uh -huh. So it makes sense that mm -hmm. they'd be gimbaled. Um, but I don't think I would have been able to guess that on like a pub quiz. Um, and so the control system, this is what I read. It says, uh, the source that I read says that the control system seeks out a sweet spot during, uh, during the firing. I believe what that means is um, it looks at the rotation of the station and uh, controls the engine so that they are thrusting on axis with the center of gravity and not causing the station to spin out of control. I don't know what else uh, a sweet spot could be. Well, the engine controller, for some reason, wasn't able to settle down into one of these sweet spots. It sounds like, you know, a PID controller uh, where the 
uh, integral term is set too high or the, the integral coefficient is set too high. And it just was being too aggressive trying to settle into the sweet spot and just swung back and forth. But it's ex once I say that, I think uh, a lot of people are going to be able to figure this out. Basically, it was moving those engines up and down uh, close enough to one of the station's resonant frequencies that the station started oscillating. And as the station oscillates in this, uh, in this frequency, it encourages the engines to match that frequency because they're in a feedback loop, um, looking at the, the station's off-axis attitude. Um, and yeah, that's all it came down to. It was a software configuration issue, um, and the, the station shook itself. There wasn't anything wrong with the engine. It was just the engine decided we're going to go dancing. It's wild. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? So this is where the Tacoma Narrows reference comes from. Uh, Mach 25 is orbital velocity. The Tacoma Narrows bridge suffered a catastrophic and deadly error. Uh, deadly. Catastrophe. Um, ca a catastrophe. There we go. I, I just think I already used the adjective catastrophic. Um, but the, the Tacoma Narrows bridge suffered a catastrophic. Oh, anomaly. Thank you, Colin, in the chat. Um, where the wind blowing uh, through the bridge uh, was able to excite one of the uh, resonant frequencies. And of course, like that's a much more complex uh, resonance. <laughs> Colin says, AKA oopsie, <laughs> catastrophic oopsie. Um, right? Like the Tacoma Narrows bridge, uh, its resonance was in a twisting motion um, that had. Uh, like a like a sine wave shape down so you've got a lot of sections twisting clockwise while the opposite sections are twisting counterclockwise and you get this nice this i mean it's, it's a very pretty effect oh actually i think the tacoma narrows bridge also bounced up and down with a couple of uh nodes that that stayed in the same place anyway right the tacoma narrows bridge fell apart because of uh resonant uh oscillations luckily the iss didn't and uh, NASA was, I'm assuming NASA and Roscosmos together, they were pretty quick in concluding, yeah, this was outside of our operational limits, but it's probably fine. Like if you think about all the things on station um, that really could suffer from this type of motion, it's all of the really critical things. Uh, the solar rays, they, they need to stay in place. And, you know, they're going to have a lot of torque placed on them anytime the station does anything, right? Just because they're so long, the, the trusses have to be relatively rigid. Um, and so flailing them back and forth seems like a <laughs> really bad thing. But even worse than that, think about all the berthing ports on ISS. Um, those really don't seem like they would love to be shaken back and forth every two seconds. But uh, the conclusion was, hey, this is fine. Um, not only was it fine, they said it doesn't affect uh, the lifespan of station. Now, at that point, they were saying another 15 years, um, you know, the lifespan is, has changed. All right, not another 15 years. I think they were evaluating the next five years because uh, in 2009, ISS would have been about 10 years old. And its original lifespan was 15. I, I think these are right. Um, so, you know, kind of kind of not looking too far in the future. We're obviously past five years from 2019. But yeah, I, you know, who knows? Maybe some of the some of the weird leaks uh, and some of the um, 
hard to track down malfunctions might have been in part caused uh, by this oscillation back in 2009. Who knows? Pretty interesting. Yeah, that's crazy. That footage you shared is pretty horrifying. (laughs) Terrifying. Yeah, it's it's absolutely horrifying. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be happy about that. I also found a YouTube video where the description was like engine malfunction my ass. This is something 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 NASA's hiding from us. And then the rest of the description was like if I would have been up there, I would have been like riding the station like a bucking bronco and like it started out very critical of NASA and then turned into a yeehaw cowboys are awesome and NASA is space cowboys <laughs> weirdness. Um, and that, that if you, if you look for this on YouTube, you'll find that one right away. It's the longest video. All the other ones are like two minutes. This one was like five minutes. Um, and in the description, the poster explained, yeah, I hacked together or this is a really hacky edit. Uh, but it seemed pointless to just post two minutes of video uh, on YouTube. So they uh, cut in a lot of like uh, space shuttle launch footage for no reason. But yeah, pretty cool event. Well, thank you, Ben. I'm glad you were able to uh, get to the bottom of this because I was wondering what on earth would cause <laughs> uh, <laughs> that such scary oscillations in the station. David, next week is the 17th to the 23rd of January. Do you have a clue for us? I do. And the clue is for next week in 1968, Fire in the Hole. Fire in the Hole. I have no idea what this one's about. But um, if you, uh, you know, uh, challenging our listeners uh, to try and get this one right. <laughs> um, we, got, we got no winners this week, but, uh, you know, it was a tough clue. This is another tough one, but I'm sure you can do it. So if you uh, think you know what the answer to that event is uh you can email us or tweet at us with the hashtag this week sf and good luck good luck all right so let's move on to upcoming space flight events there are five of them this week uh and i think they're all launches so that's cool what's the first launch starting off strong we've got a falcon heavy launch uh very exciting the first of potentially five this year and so this one will be taking place, depending on where you are, either January 12th or 13th, Thursday and Friday. And this is taking USSF-67 to geostationary orbit. Uh, they will recover the side boosters, but are not going to try to recover the core booster. And um, yeah, it'll be flying out of the Cape. And the window for the launch is Thursday, January 12th at 2245 UTC to Friday, January 13th at 0300 UTC. After that, we have uh, an I don't know launching I don't know. Um, so this is uh, based on no TAMs uh, out of Jiuquan. Um They are some, the, the guess is that it's a Long March 2F. Um, but no idea what the payload is. Um, Sam in the chat points out that um, this is somewhat similar to the 2F space plane, uh, no TAMs, but it, who, who knows? It, it does look like it's a 2F, uh, a Long March 2F, but not 100% certain. So don't hold your breath, but maybe we'll get some interesting Jonathan McDowell said on next week's show. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this this unknown launcher of unknown payload is going to be flying on Friday, January 13th at 06.52 hours UTC to 07.40 hours UTC. Um, the launch window is almost certainly smaller than that. This is just based on the NOTAMs. And then after that, on the same day, uh, same, well, 
just repeat what you just said. <laughs> um, <laughs> what differences are there really? So is, this is a Long March 2C uh, slash YZ1S. Yeah, so it's an unknown payload. No idea yeah. about that. So this will be launching 1800 through 1850 UTC. So it's a little bit, I guess, before the one that you had um, from the Xichang Satellite Launch Center from Launch Complex Three, it says. Although I thought that it said. Yeah, I think I think which exact launch pad it's going off of is maybe a yeah. little unknown. I'm not sure if the NOTAM like keep out uh, coordinates are precise mm -hmm. enough. So anyway, it looks like it might be launching from the Xichang Satellite Launch Center from Launch Complex Three. Um, maybe, maybe not, but there's pretty much nothing about this you can really know until after it happens. So just be aware of that launch as well. And then finally, rounding out our we don't knows, we might have <laughs> a Long March 2D mm -hmm. um, uh, taking an undefined payload to orbit, uh, flying out of Taiwan. And in this case, this would be one flying on January 15th, Sunday, with a window from 0304 UTC to 0339 UTC. And then finally, uh, something that we do know what it is. This is a Falcon 9 Block 5 launching GPS-3 SV-06. Um, so this is part of the GPS-3A satellite type. Yeah, we're, they're, they're heading up to uh, 10 GPS-3s, and this is the sixth out of 10. Okay, so this is flying out of Slick 40 uh, on the Cape on Wednesday, January 18th at 1200 hours UTC. Uh, the date is prob the date and time are probably correct, but uh, right now the source uh, from Launch Library is launchphotography.com. They tend to be pretty good, uh, but there hasn't been an official confirmation yet. So, uh, you know, don't buy plane tickets, but it's it's probably gonna probably gonna be going off all right those are your upcoming spaceflight events all right and so with that let's do it with the show and we would like to thank ronald jenkins and tim dot for our music we record live on sundays at 9 a.m pacific 12 p.m eastern thank you so much to colin death kid mike chris aka sty garfield sam valentin gopal and Cy kyle for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly if you want to support the show as well please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our patreon campaign affiliate links and other resources thank you so much to not a happy writer for a five-star review on itunes and thank you so much to the skp machine for a one-star review on itunes that made me very happy indeed and for more information on this episode such as show notes and other links visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for vision patches t-shirts and hoodies you can talk about the show with other listeners on twitter and reddit we're orbital podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com all right so that's it we will see you all next week on orbit until then later bye everybody see you